It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in three, two, one. Astronomy Cast, episode 556, Multi Messenger Astronomy. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts based journey through the cosmos where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. With me, as always, Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Doing great. Um, though apparently you don't have any water. I, I don't. We had a water main break here in town. There's a winter storm going on, and everything went just a little bit sideways. But uh, this is why you should always keep several days of water in your pantry. And when you're done with a water emergency, just refill the containers with clean, boiled water, and you should be good to go for the next emergency. We have a water boiler that uh-huh. we use for our tea and so uh-huh. when the when we're having those advisories we just run that thing and and fill up with water and put it in the fridge although it's probably not safe like it's not a rolling no. boil for you're supposed to boil for 15 minutes yeah this will boil for like two seconds yeah exactly and then it starts to cool, and it cools back down to a little bit lower temperature but a tamale steaming pot filled with water yeah i highly recommend For the longest time, astronomers could only study the skies with their pathetic telescopes. But then new techniques and technologies were developed to help us see in different wavelengths. Now astronomers can study objects in both visible light, neutrinos, gravitational waves, cosmic rays, and more. The era of multi-messenger astronomy is here. All right, Pamela, uh, I've been seeing this term, multi-messenger astronomy, more and more recently. So can you help people understand what is it? Well, it's not new. So let's just start with that. So the first big multi-messenger discovery that people really point to is supernova 1987A, which was detected in neutrinos as well as in light. Uh, Since then, the reason that we're now hearing about this so much was the neutron star, neutron star merger that occurred in 2017. So 30 years later, And that particular discovery, which I've heard estimates of 1 in 10 astronomers to 3 in 10 astronomers in the world, depending on how you count astronomers, worked on that particular discovery. Well, that one was detected across gravitational waves, all kinds of the electromagnetic spectrum. And with so many different kinds of detections going on, with so many different people, This, of course, started everyone talking about multi-messenger astronomy and also asking, hey, can we have funding dedicated to what we've been piecemealing together on our own? So now we're starting to see these funded, coordinated efforts where you have high-altitude cosmic ray detectors in Mexico working in coordination with buried-in-ice neutrino detectors in Antarctica in combination with gravitational wave detectors spanning all around our planet 
to together try and understand our universe. And so, like when radio waves, microwaves, visible infrared, X-rays, gamma rays, that's all part of the electromagnetic spectrum. And, and I mean, that kind of work has been done for, for decades, that you will look at something in both radio waves and in visible light. And we call that multi-wavelength. Multi-wavelength, because it's essentially still just the same thing. It's just photons, photons right? And so you're, you're only really seeing it in one dimension. Um, so can you explain, I mean, it, it's useful, but can you explain kind of why it's not as useful as starting to bring these other technologies on board? Well, at, at the end of the day, thanks to this whole E equals MC squared thing, we are able to have energy and matter transition back and forth in different ways through different astrophysical processes. So if you have a good old happy hot star hanging out somewhere in the universe, it's going to be generating light in a whole variety of different colors. And those colors are a function of what temperatures the star and if it happens to be flaring or doing something particularly dramatic, you may get physics that is also on top of that generating X-rays, right. gamma rays, high-energy events. But in general, a nice, good old-fashioned black body radiation is what we call this warm object star hanging out is just going to be giving off photons of light that we can detect here on Earth. And by looking at different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, we're probing different kinds of activities. We're seeing everything from how the atmosphere of the star is absorbing out different colors of light, telling us, well, what's the composition of the star? We see radio signals that are starting to tell us about the environment around the star. Everything's a different physical process and a different piece of information. Right. And at the That's end of the awesome. day... Photons are photons. And exactly. so and so in most circumstances, you're going to see this nice, smooth black body curve that you would expect to see. And then, as you said, if you get like auroras on Jupiter, then you might get a, a burst of X-rays. Or if you're seeing some kind of radio emission from your, some magnetic field reconnection on the sun, then you're going to get something else. But so let's talk about what are the avenues of, of what are the new other ways that we can perceive the universe. And we sort of quickly went through a bunch of them, but let's take some time now and, and talk about what we've got, what astronomers have at their disposal. So with, with photons, we're using the electromagnetic spectrum. With other things, we're still able to do that to a degree. So muons, for instance, they're a kind of particle that gets formed in our upper atmosphere when high-energy particles hit the atmosphere Energy gets turned into a particle, and those particles get detected at the surface of our planet um, thanks to how they interact with different electronic packets, basically. You can go to a variety of museums, see these setups, a flash of light will occur when a muon hits the system. And what we're seeing here is okay, something with a lot of energy occurred at the top of the atmosphere, created particles, those particles went at close to the speed of light, changing their own experience of time as they did so until they interacted at the surface of our planet. So 
this doesn't give us a lot of information about where the particles came from. And this is actually something that you're going to hear me repeat. So we can detect muons at the surface of our world. That's cool. We know there's cosmic rays because we see static on our television set when we're taking images with a CCD or a CMOS chip. We'll see these bright, blown-out pixels. This is from particles either generated um, in granite and other slightly radioactive rock that's coming up from the planet, or it's created by something that made it through our solar system's outer boundary, traveled through the solar system, and traveled through the atmosphere right. and made a mess of itself. I've got an analogy that I that I like to use with this is that it's kind of like watching fireworks, especially if you're yes. like under underneath the fireworks. And so you the firework goes off and you see the bright flash of the actual firework itself. And then you might see other flashes of other sub parts of the firework go off. But if you're close enough and if you've ever like, I don't know, shot, uh, you know, being close enough, you can like sometimes like dust will fall down from the the fireworks, which is just like the particles that are made up in it will rain down. And so now you've got like sort of two separate pieces of evidence that a that a firework went off. You're seeing the light, but you're also seeing, feeling the particles that are, that are landing around you. But then you also can hear it. You can hear the sound waves from the firework that are coming from it. And if the, you know, when, if the, if you had a really precise seismometer, when those booms are going off or when the firework is firing, it will be shaking the ground and you would be able to detect the motion of that. And each one is like almost like a completely different way of sensing that these fireworks are, are happening. And it's all, you know, each one tells you more information about what happened. And they're all independent, which is, which is the key here. So cosmic rays are, are like the that toughest dust. one, right? Yeah, yeah. But they're the, and they're the toughest one to be able to, to, like, we don't know still what's really causing the most energetic of these, right? So, so to continue with your analogy, that dust that, that's hitting you, it's been blown by the wind, it's been caught in various updrafts, it's interacted with birds' wings in some cases. And all these different interactions that the dust experiences between being generated in that firework burst and dusting you, those hide where it came from. You can't trace back right. the path to figure out exactly where the fireworks occurred. And with cosmic rays, these are charged particles. As charged particles move through the universe, they're going to encounter a myriad of different magnetic fields. And each of those different magnetic fields is going to deflect that charged particle one way and not of our planet. Well, we have no idea where they came from. Right. Like... There are particles that are striking the atmosphere or hitting space-based cosmic ray detectors with an enormous amount of energy, and we don't know, like a baseball, the amount of energy, you know, a fast-thrown baseball, and we don't know what's causing them. And and they're kind of a bear to detect because... On one hand, we, we see them in our television screens. We see them in our detectors. I currently, because I have a bad cable, see them all over my monitor. 
But at the same time, purposefully measuring them in a systematic way that allows you to measure the individual energies of these suckers is hard. And there's a whole research team dedicated to trying to study them using a high-altitude water Shrenkov experiment. This is called Hawk, and it's located at the Parque Nacional Pico de Orzoba in Mexico. And apologies for my pronunciation. Uh, and this is essentially a super picturesque field of water tanks with of volcano covered in glaciers in the background and this high altitude location because cosmic rays do inter interact with particles in the atmosphere um, allows them to detect more of these than they would at the ground. And by looking at how the cosmic rays interact with the fluid in each of these containers and produce sparks of light in the process, they're able to start to get a grasp of the diversity of energies that are being captured in these cosmic rays. So let's talk about neutrinos, which are a little easier to spot. A little. So, so I have to hem and haw with that one. <laughs> At least you know and, where they're coming from? Sort of. Yeah. So, I mean, we saw so, them come from a supernova that was in the large Magellanic cloud. We know they're coming from the sun. Well, and, and the way that we're, we're able to start to get at direction sort of kind of maybe <laughs> is, is by detecting bursts of neutrinos at multiple detectors on the planet and looking at the light travel times. We can't always do that, which means that when we look at things like the 1987A discovery, we're looking at a coincidence factor. Right. Of we saw a blast of neutrinos, but we weren't sure they were coming from that same direction. We had no idea where in the sky they came from. But due to the coincidence in time of the supernova going off and seeing this overabundance of neutrinos, that tells us that the neutrinos are most likely, well, in this case, we're saying the coincidence actually does mean that the two things are related. Yeah. Um, but any one given neutrino, just like with cosmic rays, we have no idea where any one given neutrino came from. Right, right. Uh, one interesting thing is like the new like Ice Cube, which is that that sensor that's down in Antarctica. It's big enough now that they can detect essentially the cascade of particles moving through their detector array and get a sense of roughly where it came from. But you've only got sort of that one facility. You don't have necessarily multiple facilities, you know, one in the South Pole and one in the North Pole in Greenland or something. Um, but the, there's a, they're working on a new version. Like it's, it's a cubic kilometer of ice, but they're planning on right. building a 10 cubic kilometer version, which will be even more sensitive. So we might get to this point. But right now, right, the only neutrinos that have ever been confirmed are the sun and and supernova 1987a and and so there's that theoretical if we detect them in multiple places and then there's the reality of each neutrino tells its own story and it's not telling that story to us right but you can see tons of room for improvement on that on that field as we get bigger, better neutrino detectors operating with more sensitivity and being able to 
line them up with the supernova explosions that are happening in farther and farther distance. There's a, there's a network, a supernova detection network that you can sign up for and get announcements that never happen for, for neutrino <laughs> discoveries. And, and one of the, the crazy frustrating things with so much of this is cosmic rays and neutrinos are both really good at passing through stuff. You and I currently both have a myriad of different particles passing through us. And in general, this isn't a huge deal, but we're, it's not a huge deal to us that we have them passing through us. It becomes a huge deal to scientists who are like, stop, I want the particles to stop so that I can sense them. And we put cosmic ray detectors at as high an altitude as possible so that we can catch them before they interact with the atmosphere. With neutrino detectors, we bury them as far down on the ground as we can to get rid of the cosmic rays because cosmic rays are more or less stopped by soil. They're also generated by granite, so don't build your neutrino (laughs) detectors near granite. the neutrinos, on the other hand, are like, yeah, I'm just going to pass through the planet. No big deal. I'm fine with that. Uh, this is a completely separate rabbit hole. But did you hear that they are starting to detect neutrinos coming from the Earth? No. Yeah. So apparently radioactive decay in the Earth has has they generate they've caught like 50 neutrinos that came from the Earth itself, which is just uh, absolutely fascinating. So, you know, maybe there could be multi messenger geology. Anyway, um, so let's talk about the the most recent and exciting advancement, which is, of course, in the whole field of gravitational waves. So what ability do we have to be able to, to sense the direction of gravitational waves? So gravitational waves, luckily, the way that we detect them automatically gives us a certain amount of directional information. Gravitational waves are so small that what we're detecting is a less than a proton in size fluctuation across great distances in um, the path of a laser beam. So each of these LIGO, Virgo, whatever they are, gravitational wave detectors has sets of mirrors and a laser beam And they're creating a pattern of interference. And when they see that interference pattern change, that means something has changed the distance. Now, the issue is that something could be geology, car going by, so many small factors at the level of sufficient rainfall will change the gravitational pull between two points and drift them apart. These are hairy matters to try and correct for. So in order to say, yes, I saw a gravitational wave, they have to see the same detection across all the detectors that are up and working. And they need to have a consistent timeline that allows them to triangulate where on the sky this gravitational wave should have been coming from. Now, this isn't a a super high resolution. It came from that area less than the size of the moon on the sky. But it's currently enough information, just like we used to have with gamma ray bursts. It's enough information that we go, zoom, everyone looks at that section and looks to see, is there a supernova in that section? Is there some other 
transient event that wasn't there before that we can blame this gravitational wave on. Yeah, it's definitely not down to the point that it's like the size of the full moon, but it's not bad. Um, yeah. There was a recent discovery of gravitational waves that came from sort of in the region of, of Betelgeuse, and and the astronomers knew with a level of precision that it was roughly kind of sort of in the direction of Betelgeuse to within a few degrees, enough that... You know, one of the astronomers was like, I'm sure it's not real, but I just looked out the window just to see if Betelgeuse was still there. <laughs> and and as, as a reminder, the moon is less than a degree across the sky. So we're talking several moons of yeah. sky but that beats the but, that beats the previous like before when it was just exactly. ligo you only knew really the hemisphere it either came yeah. from the left or it came from the right and then virgo gives us this level of precision down to kind of over there ish and every gravitational wave detector we add to the planet increases our accuracy, increases our ability to say, okay, so now we have all these different vectors, and the only way to work out these timings is that spot right there. And this really is where we started with gamma ray burst science, where we were able to say, oh, crud, there was a burst of gamma rays from somewhere, and we couldn't even initially say if it was above the planet or on the planet. Right. And then we got to the, yes, this is of cosmic origins. And now we've gotten to the bam, bam, bam. We are identifying all of them that have a, a visibly optical component with them. And that's just awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so what I'm, – I'm sort of – one of the things that I – we've talked about many times in the past is this idea of the cosmic microwave background, which is, of course, the electromagnetic, the photons that are in all directions, which are the afterglow of the, of the Big Bang. Could we take these different multi-messengers and try to map out something similar in, in their ways as well? Well, there, there's a lot of people trying to figure out if we can use gravitational wave science to get at a gravitational wave background that might allow us to start to get a sense of primordial black holes, of of other exotic physics that we just, just don't have any other way to prove or disprove. But the sensitivities required are beyond what we can put on the surface of our planet and probably beyond what we can put in orbit of our planet. So what's theoretically possible and what's actually possible are two very different things. And um, so, yes, in theory, we can start to probe our early universe with gravity by and looking at these small distortions. But we need to get good at measuring things way smaller than protons, way, way smaller than protons. Right. And then the other idea is potentially there could be a neutrino background cosmic background, which there would be a lot of neutrinos generated during right after the Big Bang, right? Well, and here what we're talking about uh, are the theories that relate to why we live in a primarily regular matter universe and why the matter and antimatter didn't completely self-annihilate during the Big Bang. Uh, Neutrinos seem to play a role in that. We're not entirely sure what role, but they may be out there waiting to be detected, allowing us to finally start to figure out some of these kind of ridiculous mysteries about how we got here. 
the fact that we don't know why matter dominates. It's just one of those things that it's just like, I'm sorry, we can explain so many other things, but why we're here, we, we, yeah, matter, matter is a mystery. So, I mean, how do you think this is all going to start to play out as, I mean, have the different kinds of astronomers been in their own separate camps for the longest time? You've got the neutrino people, and they're more like particle physicists. They're not yeah. necessarily astronomers. Um, they're looking in tanks of water as opposed to looking in the sky, although they know where the, you know, the particles are coming from. The gravitational wave astronomers, they're, they're like listening to the ground. They're like you know, geologists, but really, of course, they're, they're, they're watching the earth flex the space time. So do you see them more and more having to work together and come together? Is there, is there a future of sort of like people who cross train across all these different uh, techniques? Well, it's, it's going to become both a question of funding and sociology. On, on one hand, funding calls are generally pretty focused, where they're looking for people who are doing specific kinds of science. But NSF starting to recognize the power of multi-messenger astronomy and doing specific funding calls, saying, hey, we're looking at multi-messenger science and how to promote this and start doing this interdisciplinary science. Now, the other question, like I said, it's one of sociology. When you look at, well, large collaborations in particle physics, they make large collaborations in astronomy look tiny. There's thousands of people on discoveries like the Higgs boson, the top quark. And it's because you have all the high-energy theorists, experimentalists, engineers, computer scientists, all working together to create these massive facilities that are multinational because they cost billions of dollars and make JWST look cheap. <laughs> so now you no longer have the same sort of basically tiny collaboration that astronomy was initially built on. And this is a culture change. And it's one that is slowly being forced upon us. We began to see it with how uh, the Planck mission did and and before WMAP did high energy astrophysics and microwave astronomy. We started to see it with the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, but even with the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, while some of the massive catalogs that came out had huge author lists, there's still myriad papers with one to yeah. five authors. We're moving towards a future where that one to five research p- person project is no longer going to be possible because that small a number of people can't hold all the knowledge needed to creatively understand the science. Right. In building a house, you, you need a plumber, an electrician, an architect, a woodworker, a steel worker. So it's going to be like a heist movie where you've got to bring in a neutrino researcher to help you understand the, the gravitational waves that you're looking at. I love but it. instead of Ocean's Eleven, it's going to be Aerospace 542. Right. Well, I think the, the Kilanova discovery with thousands of people on that paper, 
approached the gave you a sense and it was sort of the perfect versions you had the gravitational wave researchers coming together with the electromagnetic wave researchers in every wavelength people from every telescope every observatory all working together produce one result and i loved sort of the way that whole thing came together and and we have to point out that the way it came together was due to gossip and twitter where you have different people saying, oh, my God, we had this thing. And other people going, we had a thing, too. <laughs> what, what did you guys find? I can't, I can't say. <laughs> and, and these kinds of systems where you have computers automatically tweeting things out, you have yeah. people talking to one another. This is how we realize that multi-messenger astronomy exists and it's facilitated by doing open science. Yeah. And LIGO is kind of known in the past for, like, we shall keep all results quiet because there shall be a press release and potentially a Nobel Prize. But now they're moving into having their detectors automatically send out all results. Yeah, yeah you can have them come to your phone. Up. Yeah. Yeah, you can be announced, you can know when, and then it's your job to follow up and see, you know, do you see a, is Betelgeuse still there? So... So open science is the way of multi-messenger totally. science, and it's an exciting new future. Well, Pamela, thank you so much. Uh, we'll see you next week. But before you go, do you have some names for us? Yes, I do have names I need to read out. And that first name, followed by many more, we have Jordan Young, Burry Gowan, uh, Frade Tenabao, Ramji Anamathu, Andrew Palestra, David Troig, Brian Cagle, the giant nothing, Laura Kettleson, Robert Palazma, Paul Jarman, Les Howard, Corey Diwali, Emily Patterson, Joss Cunningham, Frederick, Hogney, Kvam, Jensen, and the infinitesimal ripple in space-time. That's awesome. That's a great name. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Pamela. And we'll see all of you next week. Bye-bye. Across 10 years and more than 12 million downloads, we've brought you day after day of content. Thank you for making this possible. Now we've added a new way to donate to 365 Days of Astronomy to support editing, hosting, and production costs. Just visit www.patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and donate as much as you can. Share the podcast with your friends and send the Patreon link to them too. Every bit helps. As we head toward our 10th anniversary on January 1st, 2019, we have to ask, what in the cosmos do you want to hear about? Let us know by emailing us at info at 365daysofastronomy.org. Thank you. You are listening to the IYA 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. 
Audio post-production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. Please consider supporting the podcast with a few dollars or euros. Visit us on the web at 365daysofastronomy.org or email us at info at 365daysofastronomy.org. This year we will celebrate the Year of Everyday Astronomers as we embrace amateur astronomer contributions and the importance of citizen science. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye. Goodbye.